From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad. When news broke that the nuclear agreement with Iran, known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, had finally been signed, the reaction was mixed. In Iran, thousands of revelers crowded the streets to celebrate the prospect of an end to sanctions, while its leaders celebrated what they considered a patriotic victory. Today marks an end to uh, acts of tyranny and oppression against the great nation of Iran, and at the same time it's a starting point for a new trend. European leaders saw the agreement as marking a new beginning in relations with Iran. We are creating the conditions for building trust and opening a new chapter in our relationship. President Obama made the case that while the deal may not ultimately change Iran's behavior or transform America's relations with Iran, it would benefit America's security and prevent another war in the Middle East. With this deal, we have the possibility of peacefully resolving a major threat to regional and international security. But in Israel, opposition to the agreement is intense and widespread. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has called the deal a mistake of historic proportions. But it's not only Netanyahu. The left of center Labor Party has also come out against the deal. And so has centrist leader Yair Lapid. I'm telling you, no Israeli in his right mind, and you know what I think, no, no American in his right mind or European in his right mind can understand how can they come to such a deal. In the United States, the deal has also proven to be controversial. According to most polls, a majority of Americans are opposed. And a recent Gallup survey showed that two-thirds of Americans disapprove of the president's handling of Iran. The largest pro-Israel organization in the country, AIPAC, has mounted an intense lobbying effort against the deal. And all eyes have been on Congress, where Republicans are uniformly against it. And the White House has been working to hold as much Democratic support as possible. In this special edition of America Abroad, we break down the deal and consider what it means for the future. But first, we need to understand how we got to this point. The real roots of the nuclear deal with Iran go back decades. The history here is very important. I'm Nick Burns. I was Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs between 2005 to 2008. But back in 1979, Burns was a graduate student watching events unfold in Iran where Islamic revolutionaries overthrew the Shah of Iran and installed a new theocracy led by Ayatollah Khomeini. And those people, in a frenzy of excitement, turned out in their hundreds of thousands to give the Ayatollah's motorcade a rapturous welcome. The Iranian revolutionaries cut ties with the United States. They invaded our embassy. On November 4, 1979, they took 52 American diplomats hostage. They held them for 444 days. That was a searing event. This picture tells it all. This flag was apparently taken from someone's office inside the United States Embassy. It was burned Tuesday evening outside the embassy's gates. Every American was furious about this. We, we felt that a great injustice had been done and they had mistreated our people. With the taking of American hostages and Iran's support for terrorism, its fundamentalist ideology and its hatred of the United States, what it called the Great Satan, the overwhelming majority of Americans wanted nothing to do with Iran. President Jimmy Carter broke off diplomatic relations during the hostage crisis, and it stayed that way. That began a 35-year separation between 
the United States and Iran. Do you know during that entire time, and that spans my entire diplomatic career, I became an intern for the State Department the next year in 1980. We didn't talk to the Iranians. We had no diplomatic relationship. I was instructed, as was every other American diplomat, if you see an Iranian official at some international gathering, you may not talk to them. During the 1980s, Iran was seen as a serious military and ideological threat to the Middle East. But by the mid-1990s, Israeli intelligence began to detect disturbing evidence of a new kind of danger. The beginning was in 94. 94, we identified that the Iranians are going to make nuclear military project. Israeli General Yaakov Amadror. It was not a clear story, but we understood that this is what we see. We translated all our research into English and we sent it to America. And then nothing. The conclusion of the Americans in 95 was, okay, we killed uh, your enemy uh, in Iraq and you are uh, making new enemy from Iran. And they didn't believe us. But after two years, Israeli and American intelligence agreed on the facts, and that led to action in Washington. Former Congressman Howard Berman is a Democrat from California. American intelligence and Israeli intelligence had picked up pieces of information that made it look pretty clear that key Russians involved in their nuclear program were being invited to come to Iran to train their nuclear scientists. In 1996, President Clinton signed something known as the Iran-Libya Sanctions Act. The Iran and Libya Sanctions Bill I signed today will help to deny those countries the money they need to finance international terrorism. It will limit the flow of resources necessary to obtain weapons of mass destruction. Basically what it did was it set forth a menu of sanctions that would be imposed on any company based abroad. We already had total sanctions on U.S. companies that invested more than $20 million in Iran's energy sector. But Congressman Berman says those sanctions didn't work because Europeans weren't on board and continued to do business. What was clear was Europe at that time had a very different approach to Iran than we did. They called it constructive engagement. Six years later, more troubling news. Satellite photos were made public of Natanz and Iraq. A dissident group in Iran known as the MEK notified the world of secret nuclear facilities in Iran. One was a centrifuge uranium enrichment site and the other a heavy water production plant linked to significant plutonium output. With the memory of September 11th still fresh in the minds of Americans, President George W. Bush made clear the United States saw a new and heightened danger from countries like Iran that supported terrorism and were seeking nuclear weapons. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil, arming to threaten the peace of the world. But then in 2003, America's attention turned to Iraq. As the United States prepared for war, it was clear that many of its European allies did not support the U.S. French President Jacques Chirac. France is not pacifist. But we just feel that there is another option, another way, a less dramatic way than war. Needless to say, George W. Bush didn't agree. Neither did Congress, and neither did a majority of Americans. Good evening, everyone. As Larry has said, and we are now hearing reports, air raid sirens are going off in Baghdad. Yeah, now heavy bursts of uh, anti-aircraft gunfire coming up from the city's uh, 
coming up from across the city. Having With U.S. forces occupying an increasingly unstable Iraq, President Bush began his second term with an effort to reach out to his European allies. Here's Nick Burns. There had been a very, very divisive debate over Iraq. In 2003, France and Germany cri very critical of the United States, not supporting the United States. Uh, so we call this the Olive Branch Tour. And it was an attempt to get U.S.-European relations back on the right track. And the Europeans said to President Bush, Secretary Rice, to me and others, we need you Americans to support some type of opening negotiation with the Iranians. Newly installed Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice instructed Burns to make sure the U.S. government was paying more attention to Iran. He found there was a lot of work to be done. One of the first things I did was I went looking for the Iran desk. A desk in the State Department is the group, the office of people who are responsible for following the events in a certain country, and I found out there wasn't an Iran desk. We hadn't trained anybody in an entire generation to speak Farsi. None of my colleagues and I, and certainly me, we had never traveled to Iran. We had never worked with them. When the BBC's David Frost interviewed Rice that year, the shift in tone was noticeable. Do you find what the Europeans have done in terms of the agreements that uh, the three of them have made with Iran, is that helpful? to what you want to do because you've really got a total ostracism of Iran at the moment. Well, any effort to get Iran to live up to its international obligations that can succeed, we will support. We weren't talking to the Iranians in 2005, but we committed to the Europeans that we would support their negotiations and support the idea that there should be a negotiated solution to the Iranian nuclear problem, and that led later that year to the creation of this group, the P5 plus one, the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council. We added Germany because Germany had been so much involved in these European talks. Uh, we know that they're still trying to learn how to enrich uh, uranium. The United States insisted that the Iranians not have the right to enrich uranium. We called it zero enrichment. Now, why do we do that? because there was no trust. We know that enriching uranium is an important step in uh, a country wh whose desire it was to develop a weapon. So they had a history here, and their history was of building secret nuclear facilities, not telling the world the truth about them. And then when these facilities were divulged by the United States and Europe, they would then fess up. The P5 plus one formally offered to negotiate with Iran for the first time. Iran said no. They offered again. Iran again said no. I mean, then we said, well, we said this publicly. If you're going to continue to advance what we think is a nuclear weapons program, and you're not willing to talk about it or negotiate it or compromise in any way, we're going to sanction you. Keep in mind that Iran has been subject to sanctions for three decades since the 79 revolution. Juan Zarate was a senior official looking at terrorist financing and financial crimes for the Treasury Department. Post 9-11, what we began to realize was there was perhaps a way to use Iran's dependencies on the global financial and commercial system against them. Um, and in particular, to begin, begin to look at the banks, to look at Iranian banks and how that helped and facilitated what the regime was doing across the board. From 2006 through 2008, the U.S. and its allies passed three United Nations resolutions sanctioning Iran. Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. I am quite satisfied and quite certain that the resolution that will be adopted will be one that uh, both says to Iran, you cannot defy the international community, 
and imposes penalties on Iran for that defiance. And it's important to note that as Treasury officials were sending out representatives around the world to speak not just with government officials, but also CEOs of banks, compliance officers for companies, and popping in and out of capitals, the Iranians would follow those teams to try to deal with the damage of what the Treasury Department was doing to isolate Iran's economy. So much so that uh, the Iranian leadership called it the most significant attack on the regime since the founding of the regime in the revolution of 79. For a career diplomat like Nick Burns, sanctions were a powerful tool, but they were always a means to further diplomacy. The sanctions were designed to do one thing, twist the arm of the Iranian government so they would eventually come to the negotiating table. And I reflect now, we, we passed the first sanctions resolution against them in the United Nations in 2006. It took seven years for the Iranians to finally say yes. Well, we've been talking all morning about those new reports that that Israeli airstrike last month, well, yes, may have targeted a nuclear facility in Syria. The state of Israel didn't believe it had the luxury of time when it came to nuclear-armed neighbors. They bombed Iraq's nuclear program in 1981 and secretly bombed Syria's nuclear reactor in 2007. Early in 2008, the Israelis asked the United States to send military equipment to prepare for a possible bombing of Iran's nuclear weapons facilities. President Bush met Vice President Cheney and his foreign policy team, including Jim Jeffrey, who was then the Deputy National Security Advisor, in the private dining room next to the Oval Office. They hashed out their response. There was a real interest in not getting involved in any more conflicts. Uh, we were trying to succeed in Iraq and succeed in uh, Afghanistan. There was a real interest in not having a new administration come in that would reverse all of the progress. With Iran, we were moving ever more towards supporting a negotiated solution. There was not unanimity in the room. Vice President Cheney pushed for the use of force by Israel or the United States, though he was in the minority. There was a general feeling among most of the people in the uh, uh, room that we should continue on that trail and neither ourselves nor with the Israelis do anything militarily. And while we did give the Israelis some equipment, uh, there was concern about not giving them an inadvertent green light. The majority of people present, and ultimately the president, opted for a non-military and cautious approach. While President Bush opted for multilateral negotiations with Iran, Jeffrey says that Bush's approach was different than President Obama's. The Bush administration did not see Iran as a game changer in the Middle East. The Obama administration does. As president, Barack Obama would elevate the possibility of engagement with Iran to a higher level of priority. It is my great personal honor to present the 44th president of these United States, Barack Obama. During his inaugural address, President Obama outlined a new way forward for engagement with countries like Iran. To those who cling to power through corruption and deceit and the silencing of dissent, know that you are on the wrong side of history, but that we will extend a hand if you are willing to unclench your fist. In March 2009, Obama sent the Iranian people a videotaped message for their national holiday of Nowruz. My administration is now committed to diplomacy that addresses the full range of issues before us 
and to pursuing constructive ties among the United States, Iran, and the international community. This process will not be advanced by threats. We seek instead engagement that is honest and grounded in mutual respect. Along with that message came a dialing down of the pressure, Juan Zarate. The Obama administration very much wanted to attempt engagement with the regime in Tehran in those early days of the administration. And so what they did actually was to slow the pressure that had been mounting on the financial side and stall a bit. In a sense, the basic concept that we adopted in the first year was let's be prepared to engage with the Iranians. Dennis Ross was the White House official in charge of the Iran nuclear issue. He says the goal was always to get the Iranians to the negotiating table. Uh, but if they're not prepared to engage, then we'll use their reluctance to engage directly, bilaterally. But the idea is let's build pressure and leave them a way out. But as the negotiating team was about to find out, the situation on the ground in Iran was about to get a whole lot more complicated. We'll have more on that after this break. You're listening to Examining the Nuclear Deal with Iran on America Abroad. Let us know your thoughts about this program. Tweet us at America underscore abroad. I'm Madeline Brandt, and you're listening to Examining the Nuclear Deal with Iran. The year was 2009, and that June, hardline traditionalist Mahmoud Ahmadinejad won a second term as president in an election viewed by many around the world as fraudulent, sparking widespread protests, which became known as the Green Movement. There was a brutal government crackdown. The Obama administration was widely criticized for its tepid initial response. Many in Congress were eager to send a more powerful message. One proposal was from Howard Berman, the California Democrat, who at the time was chairman of the House Foreign Relations Committee. He told Obama his plan. I told him, I'm moving it, but I'm letting your strategy play out. I'm not going to rush it to passage. And pressure was mounting from abroad as well. Dennis Ross says the prospect of an Israeli attack certainly shaped the way decisions were made in the White House. We needed to come up with an approach that the Israelis would also believe was quite credible, showing that we were very serious that if negotiations didn't succeed, that we were prepared to use force. Yaakov Amadror was to become Israel's national security advisor in the government of Benjamin Netanyahu. He believed that President Obama was willing to do whatever it took to stop Iran. I understood that the president gave an order to prepare the capability to neutralize the Iranian project. Before the order of the president, America didn't have the capability, so I intend to believe that, yes, they are serious. Negotiations continued. The Obama administration offered to provide fuel for Iran's nuclear reactor if it would agree to ship out its enriched uranium, which looked promising. There was an agreement in principle that the Iranians would accept this, but the deal was then, when it went back to Tehran, it was rejected. So when that failed to materialize, then towards the end of the year, we then moved towards focusing on the sanctions track. We are at this point because the government of Iran has chosen clearly and willfully to violate its commitments to the IAEA and the resolutions of this council. 
That's Susan Rice, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations at the time, addressing the U.N. in 2010. Despite consistent and long-standing demands by the international community, Iran has not suspended its uranium enrichment and other proliferation-related activities. Susan's uh, skill and persistence and strong efforts uh, in Washington resulted eventually uh, in June of 2010 uh, with a very strong uh, Security Council resolution. Robert Einhorn was the top nonproliferation expert and advisor in the State Department. What passed that day was known as UN Resolution 1929. Which imposed a series of sanctions against Iran and provided a kind of uh, authorization, a legitimization for the United States and others to adopt their own national sanctions, which the U.S. did, the European Union did. While the tough economic sanctions were isolating Iran and damaging its economy, that didn't stop Iran from forging ahead with its nuclear weapons program. In 2011, Israeli Defense Minister Ehud Barak met with Dennis Ross and other White House officials. I don't believe that these kind of sanctions will bring the Ayatollahs into a moment of truth where they sit around the table, look at each other's eyes, and decide that the game is over. There were points during this period where we were being told by the Israelis, assume that what we're saying to you now constitutes your warning. You're not going to get a warning right at the moment we do it. Ross believes the threat of an Israeli attack helped stiffen the spine of the international community. There was a genuine belief that this was a distinct possibility. Now, while there were concerns about it, we also used it. We used it with the Europeans. We used it with the Chinese. We used it with the Russians. That if you're not prepared to go along with what are dramatically tougher sanctions, then the prospects of military action being taken are going up significantly. Israel's Yaakov Amajor met regularly with top officials at the White House. He says the Israeli and American governments communicated well. For the two first years, it was a very successful effort. We were on the same page, and when we were not in the same page, we made all the efforts to convince each other. We understood the American policy. Uh, They understood our policy. We never surprised each other. In 2012, President Obama addressed APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, and made clear the administration would prevent a nuclear Iran, not contain a nuclear Iran. I've said that when it comes to preventing Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon, I will take no options off the table. And I mean what I say. That includes all elements of American power. Then, at the United Nations, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu underlined the Iranian nuclear threat to the world. Standing before the U.N. General Assembly, he held up a cartoon bomb and drew a red line across the top, making sure nobody missed his point. Here's a diagram. This is a bomb. This is a fuse. He said to the United Nations, time was running out. By next spring, at most, by next summer, at current enrichment rates, they will have finished the medium enrichment, and move on to the final stage. At the time, the White House and Israel were in constant communication, and economic leverage against Iran was high. Robert Einhorn. Uh, With the imposition of the oil sanctions, this was what really tipped the balance. The uh, oil sanctions uh, resulted in over 50, 55 percent drop in Iranian oil export revenues. 
this was devastating, you know, that ultimately gave rise to the election of Hassan Rouhani as president in June 2013. Around this time, President Obama made a fateful decision to go for secret talks with Iran without Israel or Europe in the loop. Bill Burns was deputy secretary of state and a lead negotiator with Iran. President Obama, I I believe, rightly made the judgment that this was another moment at which we needed to test Iranian seriousness as a potential investment if we needed to try to step up leverage even further. The Omanis um, had played a very helpful role in the release of the three hikers who had been detained quite unfairly in Iran for a long period of time. We are so happy we are free and so relieved we are free. Our deepest gratitude goes towards His Majesty Sultan Qaboos of Oman for obtaining our release. And so it demonstrated their capacity to quietly help accomplish objectives. They had offered to facilitate such a dialogue, and so we decided to take them up on that. And certainly it became clear relatively early on that an interim deal uh, between us was possible. The Israeli government was livid when it learned of the secret talks. Here's Yaakov Amidror. We understood from our intelligence sources that the Americans are having a parallel track a secret one they didn't inform us about. Robert Einhorn, former American negotiator. And that was a source of some very hard feelings later in the fall before the interim agreement was concluded. Look, if your best friends that you are cooperating with him, whatever is needed, and at the end is cheating you without telling you that he's in secret negotiations with your common enemy, I mean, what can you expect? and they understood that they cannot bring the victim to negotiate about his execution day. And this is why they didn't tell us. But the souring wasn't just about feeling excluded. It was what the Americans were putting on the table. You know, the clear preference all along was zero enrichment. Uh, That was the clear policy of the Bush administration, and that started out as the policy of the Obama administration. But it was recognized early in the Obama administration you know, as Iran was building up its enrichment program, adding centrifuges, at some point it became very clear that if there was to be an agreement, it was not going to prohibit all enrichment. And they understood that Israel is not, will not be ready to take part in any negotiations which are leading to legitimizing the Iranian military project and just focusing on postponing this capability instead of dismantling it. That was the beginning of the rift between Israel and America. You know, the Iranians had learned their way around the nuclear fuel cycle, and the reality was that you couldn't wish away, dismantle away, bomb away that basic know-how. Diplomat Bill Burns explains the change in policy this way. While you couldn't mobilize an international consensus around the notion of zero enrichment by the time of President Obama's second term. Um, What you could do is mobilize an international, strong international consensus within the P5 plus one and beyond it around a very limited, sharply constrained program over a long duration with very tough verification measures. And so it's that framework which animated, um, you know, the Obama administration's approach to the issue. It was a very pragmatic uh, calculation and one that led to the final agreement. Today, after two years of negotiations, 
the United States, together with our international partners, has achieved something that decades of animosity has not, a comprehensive long-term deal with Iran that will prevent it from obtaining a nuclear weapon. Behind all the details about issues such as inspections, number of centrifuges, and the pace of lifting sanctions, the question of whether the administration gave away too much is at the heart of the intense debate in the United States over the nuclear deal. Dennis Ross believes the administration made a tough judgment call and agreed to what it thought was the best deal it could get at the time. You couldn't produce the agreement that we might have had in mind, at least I think this is the conclusion the administration drew, but it could still constrain the Iranian program for long enough and with the scope of transparency, that would give you a high enough confidence that you really were getting the Iranians uh, off this track. No question that the Iranians were in a position that the agreement was needed by Iran more than it was needed by America. All the cards were in the hands of the Americans, but one, the card of self-confidence. Former Israeli National Security Advisor Yaakov Amajor believes the U.S. squandered its strong leverage and negotiated badly. If you don't demand it, you don't get it. So look what happened here in a situation in which all the best cards were in the hands of the Americans, that they came to negotiation with the notion that it's not realistic to ask what is needed to be asked. So no question that at the end of the day, if you come to the table with this understanding, your chance to get a good agreement is almost none. Obama is doing all of this as part of a transformational goal to flip Iran. Jim Jeffrey worked for both the Bush and Obama administrations. He believes President Obama made significant concessions on the nuclear deal because the president has a larger goal, and that is empowering the moderates in Iran. They believe that this is going to instigate a process where the cool kids are going to win in Iran and that we will have a partner, or at least a potential partner, for resolving Middle East problems like ISIS. With Obama, this agreement is a means to an end. This deal offers an opportunity to move in a new direction. We should seize it. So that's how we got to this agreement. Now let's look at the current debate. One of the biggest points of contention in this deal is the end of sanctions. To help us sort through some of these questions, we welcome sanctions expert Mark Dubowitz. He's head of the Washington-based Foundation for Defense of Democracies and is a strong opponent of the deal. Fundamentally, I'm opposed to this deal because of the very structure of the deal, the fundamental architecture of the deal, because what it essentially does is it provides for an expanding nuclear program over time while diminishing U.S. economic leverage over time. So there's a an asymmetry to this deal. We're actually going to give the Iranians a massive nuclear program with near-zero nuclear breakout within the next decade to decade and a half, and at exactly at the time when we need peaceful economic leverage to prevent them from breaking out or sneaking out to a weapon, we're going to lose that economic leverage, and we're going to be faced with a terrible choice between either conceding an Iranian nuke or using military force to forestall it. So in my view, this deal makes war more likely, not less likely. And when that war comes, Iran will be much stronger and the consequences will be much more severe. Well, you know, Iran, as, as, we, as we know, was moving towards a, a nuclear weapon with the sanctions. Mm -hmm. How do you respond to that? The way I respond is that if you look at Iranian uh, nuclear expansion, the Iranians have expanded their program incrementally. They haven't 
expanded massively. And the reason for that is that they have feared crippling U.S. sanctions, and they have feared the threat of military force. And, and that's why the Iranians have actually preferred to negotiate. They, they think they can get everything they want through negotiations, and they're not willing to test American red lines. We are in a much stronger position today to negotiate a better agreement than we will be in 5 or 10 or 15 years' time, and primarily because we have powerful economic leverage. Let's talk about the so-called snapback sanctions, and this is something that the president has said would come into play if Iran is, is caught cheating on its nuclear goals. What do you think about those? Because he has said that this is a powerful incentive for them not to cheat on this agreement. Well, there are two snapbacks in this agreement. There's our economic snapback, and there's Iran's nuclear snapback. The economic snapback is that if the Iranians cheat, we will reimpose sanctions. Well, the reality is, over time, as Iran's economy grows more powerful, more resilient, as the Europeans plow back hundreds of billions of dollars into the economy, I find it highly unlikely to believe that we will be able to persuade all of these companies to get back out of Iran. So I think our economic snapback, while effective in the first couple of years of the agreement before they go back in, will increasingly diminish in its efficacy over time. But more importantly, the Iranians have a much more powerful snapback. They have a nuclear snapback, where in three places in the agreement, it says specifically that if we reimpose sanctions on Iran, then Iran can walk away from the agreement and treat it as null and void. Then they will make the case that if you impose sanctions on us with the Americans, then we will walk away from the table, we will escalate our nuclear program, and then you'll have no choice but to go to war with us. And of course, the Europeans will be loath to want to contemplate that. Okay, so you said that there is a better deal to be had, that this deal can be amended. What would that look like? Well, if I had my choice and I could only amend this agreement in one way, uh, I would amend the sunset clauses, these provisions that permit Iran over time to expand its nuclear program, where these key restrictions disappear over time. I would amend the agreement so that those restrictions wouldn't disappear arbitrarily over time, and they would only disappear with an affirmative vote by the UN Security Council, where America retains its veto. With that one amendment, you could fundamentally rectify what is one of the fatal flaws of this agreement. That's Mark Dubowitz. He's executive director of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Well, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Madeline. Washington has certainly been a focal point for discussions around the Iran nuclear deal, but nowhere is this debate more relevant than in Israel, where Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been probably the most outspoken opponent of the deal. But his hawkish Likud party has also been joined by other parties on the left and center in their unified opposition to the agreement. Reporter Daniela Cheslow spoke to Israelis in Tel Aviv's Levinsky Market, prized nationwide for its Persian restaurants and spice shops. Levinsky Market spreads through a small collection of colorful, aromatic streets in Tel Aviv, where signs written in curvy Farsi script advertise spices, rice, and beans. Vendors and restaurant owners here are among the 100,000 Israelis who trace their roots to Iran. When I visit in early August, the sun beats the asphalt as a record heat wave broils both Israel and Iran. One Iranian Israeli offers relief from the heat with fresh-squeezed, cold pomegranate juice. I just, you know, it's my break from work, so I'm going to lunch have a, to buy a food. Shlomi Levy sells furniture and does accounting in the Levinsky market. He's 29. 
I meet him as he sips on sour, bright red pomegranate juice on a narrow sidewalk. I don't think that you can make a peace with people who uh, uh, said we should uh, destroy Israel. All the time the Iranian president says Israel should uh, be killed. Shlomi is half Iranian and he says living in Israel gives him perspective that maybe Obama lacks. He doesn't know all the people in Iran, their culture. We, we know all the liars in Iran. He doesn't know it. He living in a bubble. Israelis also live in a sort of bubble. They can't visit Iran, and Iranians can't visit Israel. But Shlomi says he met Iranians while traveling in Thailand, and they got along great, even speaking Persian together. The problem is with the regime in Iran, not, not with the people. Riva Fas too says the problem is with politics, not people. She was eating lunch in the Levinsky market with her daughter, who was preparing to study abroad in the United States. Riva says she's frustrated by Netanyahu's warnings that the Iran deal will endanger Israel. I don't believe that the Iranians want to start war with us. I don't think so. Especially not nuclear bomb, I'm sure. But maybe I'm naive, I don't know. That's, that's my belief. Riva says she's more worried that Israel and the United States seem to be drifting apart over the Iran deal. Because we depend on America, no matter what. We have to realize that. Where do you see Israel in like 10 years with this deal? Do you think Israel will be a safer place? Safer, I'm not sure, but it will survive. Israel is strong and uh, I don't see any, any problem. But we have to be prepared. Prepared even to accept the deal, she says. For America Abroad, I'm Daniela Cheslo in Tel Aviv. You're listening to Examining the Nuclear Deal with Iran. Coming up, we visit Tehran to hear how some there feel about the deal. Visit our website for extended interviews, special features, and more. We're at americaabroad.org. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to Examining the Nuclear Deal with Iran. The question of how the Iran deal impacts Israel has been hotly contested, but supporters of the deal insist it's the best way to ensure greater stability in the region right now. The reality is, whether we like it or not, for more than the past decade, Iran has steadily been advancing towards a nuclear weapons capability. Phil Gordon is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He was formerly the White House coordinator for the Middle East. Even under international sanctions and the threat of force, they have gradually moved forward to go from zero to 19,000 centrifuges to build up a stockpile of low-enriched uranium that's more than 10 tons, enough for a number of nuclear weapons, to start building a heavy water reactor that could eventually make weapons-grade plutonium, uh, all without... Uh, significant international inspections. The question of inspections has been another core argument. Opponents say it doesn't come close to the anywhere, anytime inspections they were promised. Supporters, including a group of 29 nuclear scientists who sent a letter of support to the administration, say the deal provides an unprecedented window into Iran's nuclear facilities. Nobody trusts Iran's peaceful intent. Uh, An agreement like this can only work if you have knowledge about what the Iranians uh, are doing. The verification and monitoring uh, provisions in this agreement are such that we'll be able to watch not only Iran's declared enrichment facilities, which is obviously critical, but the entire fuel chain at every level, so that for Iran to cheat, 
uh, and secretly try to uh, develop a nuclear weapon. It would require us missing things at every level along the way simultaneously, which is about as good as you can get in terms of monitoring a program like that. Still, many critics say the U.S. has given up too much and that the only safe Iran is one that has no nuclear capability at all. Phil Gordon says that's just not realistic. That would be ideal. That's what my preference would be. I think that's what we would all prefer to see. And holding out for an outcome that required Iran to abandon enrichment entirely was almost certainly a recipe for not having a deal at all. And not having a deal at all uh, was a recipe for Iran continuing to develop its centrifuge capability well beyond even the current state. More importantly, says Gordon, is that the U.S. be able to hit the pause button, so to speak, for the next 10 to 15 years. I think at a minimum, critics have to accept that uh, we buy time, even if they're concerned about what happens afterwards, which is legitimate, and even if they're concerned about freeing up Iranian assets in the meantime. uh, On the nuclear issue, clearly, this buys time and a considerable amount of time. In the end, Phil Gordon echoes what President Obama, Secretary of State Kerry, and other negotiators have been saying since the deal was signed. This is a good deal, and it's the best we could get. The easiest Monday morning quarterback thing to do is say, well, you know, why didn't you insist on more? Why didn't you ask for more? But, you know, negotiators have to make a judgment, uh, and they have to avoid the risk of insisting on too much. People also say that the Obama administration, you know, was too quick to agree or too desperate for a deal. Remember that it took uh, two years of negotiations and many failed so-called deadlines before we got this deal. Uh, We held out. Phil Gordon is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He was formerly the White House coordinator for the Middle East. We turn now to Iran to try to get some sense of how the Iranian people themselves are reacting to the deal. Outside Friday prayers at the University of Tehran, an older crowd expresses a deep mistrust of the deal and, not surprisingly, of the United States. No, man, no I, I don't trust them. Yeah. And, and why? So they have a very bad history. Yeah. From the day I, I've known myself, I, I've seen the United States Uh, doing actions against us. Another man fears the U.S. may use inspections to spy on Iran. (laughs) Others, like 80-year-old Mahmoud, Mahmoud Zoda, express a blind faith in the Iranian regime to make the right decision. Whatever amount that our leaders approve, we also approve. Whatever amount our leaders are worried, we are also worried. Whatever amount they have trust, we also have trust. A younger crowd says it's more hopeful about the deal. 24-year-old Merdad Bharati is studying medicine at the university. Yeah, actually, I think it has a positive effect on the students of the university uh, because we are studying to build a better country and it makes easier for us to have a connection to uh, other countries of the world. At a coffee shop just north of Tehran, one 29-year-old woman says the lifting of sanctions will help the Iranian economy. 
It's good news because the losses we've had in the past four or five years, whether it was my father's business or the people around me, I saw it. Life had gotten hard. I feel like it's going to change. Shopkeeper Mahdi Panahi invokes Iran's long history of literature and poetry, quoting a line from Persian poet Hafez. Hafez said, we should plant a tree of friendship that would grip all hearts. It's clear what he said about this. He says, come to an agreement which would benefit both sides. The lifting of sanctions should help Panahi's business, but university student Sarah sees the deal in more measured terms. At least it's better in terms of people's everyday lives. But you're choosing between something bad and something worse. Life is hard for the people of Iran under sanctions, she says. It's not a good deal, but it's better than nothing. Special thanks to Reese Ehrlich for collecting those interviews from Iran with funding from the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. Back in the U.S., some experts are looking at the Iran nuclear deal in broader terms, considering how it's likely to affect Iran's society and economy, as well as its foreign policy. For some insight on this, we spoke with author and Brookings fellow Suzanne Maloney. She's been studying Iran for the last 20 years. You've, you've said in the past that Iranians are obsessed with security. And what do, you, what do you mean by that? And can this deal relieve some of that tension? You know, this leadership is very much forged by the experience of the revolution, which was in and of itself um, one that was deeply skeptical, deeply hostile to the West. And then the experience of the uh, chaos that followed in the invasion uh, by Saddam Hussein uh, that was perceived from the Iranian side with some justification as not just a, a, an attack by a neighbor, but a conflict that the entire world supported as a means of trying to eradicate the Islamic Republic and to undo the Iranian revolution. And that perception, that deeply paranoid, deeply uh, conspiratorial sense that the world is out to get them and that uh, everything that happens in the region happens through the hand of uh, American antipathy toward Tehran and toward Islam uh, is one that drives much of the way Iran treats its own population, much of the way Iran attempts to extend its influence around the region. I don't know that this nuclear deal is going to change that in any significant way in the short term. I think that those are deeply embedded perceptions, um, and they're often, I think, reinforced uh, by developments within the region. You have said in the past that you were surprised by the wide-ranging nature of the sanctions relief in this deal. What part surprises you? Well, there are a number of areas where I think the administration could have tried to play a, a greater degree of hardball. Um, in particular, the relief given to sanctions that had been put in place mostly by the U.S. Congress, but in some cases by executive order, uh, with multiple justifications. In other words, they weren't simply predicated on the nuclear standoff, but they were in fact explicitly predicated on other concerns about Iranian policy, mostly Iran's regional activities and its support for terrorist organizations around the world. So I think that there was always a question of exactly how the administration was going to thread the needle when it came to providing relief for those sanctions. 
And in fact, what happened was in the, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, there is fairly wide-ranging uh, relief from all of those measures, irrespective of the, the justification with which they were put in place. Well, some critics of this deal here in the United States say that instead of this deal, the U.S. should impose more crippling sanctions. Is that doable? Undertaking those kinds of sanctions would be effectively seen as an act of, of trade war by most of our allies and by other major states around the world, including the Russians and the Chinese. And I think that we would find ourselves very much in an adversarial position with the very countries that, whose assistance we need in order to make the sanctions work. So if this does have the support of the rest of the international community and uh, is seen as largely a good thing when it comes to reducing the threat of nuclear proliferation, why do you think then it is so controversial here in the United States? I think the fundamental reason is it is the deal is seen as a sort of get-out-of-jail-free card for Iran that this really uh, unprecedented level of pressure, which had produced at least some shift in the way the Iranians approached the negotiations over the nuclear issue and some meaningful concessions on their policy toward the nuclear issue, um, that this pressure is being uh, released just at the moment where Iran's activities around the region are creating new cause for concern about its uh, support for terrorist organizations and destabilizing role in the region. Um, and so I think that, you know, there's just a level of frustration that, you know, we've come this far, let's really address the broader problem. And, and certainly it's a problem that many of our allies see as at least as significant and as urgent and perhaps even more so than the nuclear issue. Suzanne Maloney with the Brookings Institution, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. The nuclear deal is complex, and it will be years before we know how it will turn out. If it will be seen as a diplomatic achievement, one that prevents war and even helps lead the U.S. and Iran towards a more cooperative future, or if it will help strengthen Iran's theocracy and only delay their nuclear ambitions for a short while. Either way, the deal will help define the legacy of President Barack Obama, and it will have a real impact, for good or ill on the future of the Middle East and the security of the world. You've been listening to Examining the Nuclear Deal with Iran. This hour was written, edited, and produced by Mia Lobel, Rob Sachs, and Aaron Lobel, with additional production help from Flan Williams. Special thanks to Shara Morris, Shuka Kalantari, Ashley Cleek, and George Lavender. Audio engineering support was provided by Philip Richards and Mike Newport at KCRW. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the America Abroad or Public Radio International apps, or by visiting our website at PRI.org, where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. PRI Public Radio International.